Hello, my name is Rick Tenenbaum, and I will be having a conversation with Melissa Scars for the New York City Trans Oral History Project, in collaboration with the New York Public Library's Community Oral History Project. This is an oral history project centered on the experiences of trans-identifying people. It is July 5th, 2017, and this is being recorded in Manhattan, New York. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Rick. How are you? I'm great. Could you please introduce yourself um, with however you like, and also talk a little bit about where you were born and where you grew up? So my name is Melissa Sklars. I'm a trans female. I use she and her. Um, this is the year 2017. I transitioned in 1991. Is really when I started on hormones. So it's over 25 years now. I was born in Manhattan. Um, we, my family lived here until I was about two and a half. When my mom became pregnant for the third time, the family moved out of uh, Stuyvesant Town, or Peter Cooper, where we were living on the east side. And then we moved to Long Island, to Hicksville, New York, in Nassau County. Uh, as you know, white veterans had the GI Bill after World War II, and they got access to cheap schooling and very inexpensive housing. And so uh, we moved into a three-bedroom split-level house in the suburbs on former potato fields. Um, and we grew up there, surrounded by the baby boom generation of thousands and thousands of kids just like us. And, um, and I lived there consistently until I went away to school and then on and off since then. And so, on and off, where, where were you moving about? So, what was life like in the 1950s and 1960s? Hicksville was a typical suburb for Long Island. It was all white. Um, it was the same economic class. It was all middle class. Um, my high school was filled to the brim with kids just like us. Uh, the, the neighborhood, the, the community was originally mostly German, then Irish, then Italian, and a smattering of Jews like us. Uh, mostly I knew growing up a lot of Italian and Irish kids and some Germans, uh, and of course the Jewish kids. Uh, my high school at over 3,000 people, my graduating class at over 1,000 people. Today in Hicksville, it's about one-third the size of what it was. My generation, my cohort, was the pig in the python. In fact, now the millennial generation, you, uh, is now uh, more than our baby boom generation was for the first time since World War II. Um, and so... On my block, there must have been 100 kids. Uh, there must have been, you know, maybe 30 houses and probably had the, the there were some families had two kids and some had five or six. Every house had lots of kids. And, uh, and all the, the fathers served in World War II and they all moved out of the city and they were all excited to be among cohorts living in the suburbs. Um, 
There were, I mean, the idea of diversity where I grew up was Jews. It was the only thing. Again, it was all white. It was all Christian. In those days, they did not differentiate. We lived in a Christian culture. There was no differentiation for Jews. We People today, they take a look and they make fun of holiday season screenings and holidays instead of just Christmas. Well, I was a Jewish kid who grew up when everything was Christmas and it was uncomfortable because it was very obvious that we were left out of it. In fact, one year, I think just to make us happy as children, my parents actually kind of sort of celebrated Christmas, not with a tree and decorations, but with Christmas morning presents, the whole thing just so that we could experience it once. And it was fun. It was very exciting. Uh, We never did it before and we never did it again. But just as all of us, my siblings and I, reached the age of 8, 9, 10, this was probably a big deal. Um, You know, my parents worked very hard to give us what we wanted. My dad used to be in the garment industry uh, in the 20th century, Many Jews, most Jews, all Jews worked in the garment industry to some degree. My father worked there. His father worked there. His father-in-law worked there. My uncle, my father's younger brother, in fact, uh, after the Navy, went to school and got a degree in engineering. So he never did that. But it was very, very, very common. Um... After a while, it became obvious that my father had no real yearning to sell bedspreads like his father. Uh, so my dad went back to school, got a master's degree, uh, and wanted to become a teacher. And I was probably still a little kid then. Um, and he uh, got his master's degree. And of course, because he was a teacher... He was constantly looking for gigs because his job didn't pay that much. Uh, So he was always doing other kinds of jobs, uh, especially while he was a student getting his master's degree. Uh, I mean, for a while he was a substitute teacher, then he was a gym teacher. And then uh, finally what happened is they hired him in our school district. He became the first Jew to be hired to teach American history. They only allowed the Jews to teach science up until my father became a uh, history teacher. Uh, My father had a sense of the world that was special and he felt it was very, very important that all of us knew that there was a world outside of Hicksville Um, I was my father's child. I was the most like him. I was the eldest, the firstborn. And so uh, I was raised to be very much like him. Uh, He and I got along great through all the crazy I put both my folks through. And and he loved me until the day he died. Um, I would go to school with him when he was getting his master's degree fascinating to me, you know, um, in international relations. But among his different gigs, 
he was teaching recreation because he, he studied physical education in college at NYU. But he got a gig in Brooklyn teaching, uh, being uh, running a community center. And so my younger brother and I would go with him. And so we're talking 10, 11, 12 years old. And we would go to Bedford-Stuyvesant. And here are these two little white suburban kids, little Jewish kids, going into an all-African-American neighborhood. We were flabbergasted. We had never seen anything like, we had never heard of anything like this. We would occasionally have awareness of black people, but the idea of a community of all black people was astounding. Um, and you know what? The kids in this community were as astounded to see us because they probably saw white people as infrequently as we saw people of color. And so at first it would be awkward, very awkward, extremely awkward. There are no boundaries. There's no learning. Um, but I had a secret weapon. And it became very effective. My secret weapon is I was a jock. And I discovered very quickly that um, playing ball was a great, great uh, interaction that worked. And when they saw that I could play softball and do very well for a kid my age, it was a great icebreaker. And we would go with my dad to the community center in Brooklyn and after time, we made friends, we fit in. We were as different and unique in this setting. We, you know, we played pool, we'd run around, we made friends. And it was astounding. We're talking the pre-civil rights era of New York, uh, before the Civil Rights Act of 1964. I would say it was 61, maybe 62. I would say during JFK years. And here we were there. And um, it's a great, great memory that I have. You know, if my brother was here, I don't know what his memories would be. But it was cool and it was fun. You know, when I was a little kid, I became aware of this obsession. I don't know if children can have obsessions, but I was obsessed with having feelings of the opposite gender. Uh, I had no awareness or knowledge of anything outside of my realm that indicated that anything was going on other than the fact that I was obsessed by this. I was obsessed by my mother and my sister and the women and the girls in the neighborhood. And I never could quite figure out what it meant. And no one really could help me with this. I did learn very early that my concerns and interests were not typical and I learned to shut it down and to lie and at a very, very early age. We're talking way before 10. And I don't know what happened. I mean, I can remember being six, seven, eight, and, and playing with grandma's makeup and, and then to my shock and horror find out that unlike lipstick, nail polish doesn't come off in soap and water. 
and um, so visiting grandma, you know, and here my nails are uh, flaming red, and in the soap and water isn't working, and, and I can remember getting a nail file and just filing off the tops of my nails. Um, so the sense of shame and differentness was imbued at a very young age. If there was an incident that happened involving my mother, I do not remember. Um, but I do remember being ashamed. I do remember asking around and discovering that none of my little friends had this same obsession. That my obsession about opposite gender was very unique to me. I would play, there, apparently little boys go through an era, a period of their life hating girls. I never did that. I played, I played with boys, I played with girls. I, I liked doing the things that girls did, but I was a, an athlete. I was a, a good at, I was good at sports. And yet I also liked to do the things that the girls did. I was truly dual gendered. In some ways I still am, which is um, very ironic that, uh, that these same questions I had when I was six, seven, eight, I still ask today. Um, what are some of those questions that you're still asking? Who am I? Where do I belong? Where do I fit in? What is my identity? You know, I take a look at the modern language of gender identity and gender expression today, and it, you know, I'm as puzzled now as I was when I was eight years old. Um, some of it fits very well and some of it not at all. Um, I know that, that there are are trans women that know absolutely positively that they are women and, and that's puzzling for me because I don't share that same absoluteness that some trans women do. I'm a trans woman, you know. I This is the life I live. I, I've made the best of it. Um, I still feel I'm dual gendered. Um, you know, it'd be a lot easier if I was one or the other, but I don't really feel that way. It's a discussion that permeates through therapy through the years. Um, for a while, I used to think that, that trans women that were adamant about being women were crazy, and I've since learned that no, there are trans women that very, very adamantly see themselves as women. So I, I've discovered that even within trans community, I have a uniqueness, or it's certainly unique for me. Um, I mean, when I was a kid, I would cross-dress. I, I don't know what else you'd call it. I mean, I would play with the girls. Um, I'd play board games with the girls. I would play dress-up. Um, you know, but I, I also did my little boy things. You know, I was equally comfortable if there was some kind of rules cultural parental rules um, I do not remember them until I got older and started to cross-dress in secret uh, more actively um, I would say from ages up until puberty I got away with it pretty easily as my body started to change, um, 
it became a problem because my body grew and my sister's stuff became um, difficult to access. And my mother is OCD. And I knew that she knew where everything in her room was. Everything. And that as hard as I would try, I could never get it exactly the way it was. I even drew maps of her closets, her drawers, so I would know exactly. And it never, it sometimes worked, but I would get caught and I would be confronted and denied everything. And I was lying and she knew I was lying. And I was, I ignored it. You know, I just, this is my story. I'm sticking to it. And um, as I became a teenager and became obvious that there was something dramatic going on, my mother put locks on her bedroom and my sister's bedroom, neither of which kept me out of their bedrooms. Um, after I became homeless and went to rehab and, and had this grand revelation about my gender identity, my father was shocked. My mother was not remembering back to these early years. You know, I, I started lying dramatically, consistently, um, reasons to stay home alone. I tried different outfits, different, different expressions. I had sexual fantasies involving me as a woman with men. All this, and this must be those early teen years. Um, and I had no idea what it meant. And I can remember in nine, when I was 11, uh, in our household, we read two newspapers every day. Morning, we had the daily, we had the uh, New York Times, and in the afternoon, we had Newsday, which was a Long Island paper. And in those days, it was, it was illegal for men to dress as the opposite sex. People, men would get arrested, and a man got arrested. And then I got to ask my mom the, the question that every mom of an 11-year-old wants to hear from their child in the early 1960s. Mommy, what's a transvestite? And in the newspaper, they reported that this person got arrested. They talked about what she was wearing. And I was amazed because it showed me for the first time that these feelings that I had about being male identified that there's someone else out there doing something and I was amazed flabbergasted you know the only other than seeing Bugs Bunny on the cartoons the idea that that I could dress as a woman you know I I didn't know anything else there there was no language um, and so I decided to investigate and when I say investigate, I went to the Hicksville Public Library and I read every book that I thought could tell me more about this thing. I read all the textbooks. I read all the novels. I read all the true crime stories. I read histories. Anything that I thought that could tell. I would look for homosexuality, transvestism, and transsexualism. Um... This would have been about 10 years after Christine Jorgensen. 
and this is the early to mid 60s and um i learned a great deal about a lot of things uh, uh, and i learned more about cross gender i there again there was no language for it there was you had transsexuals you had transvestites and and there seemed to be a realm in between that they didn't have language for. And when I was 17, as you know, Christine Jorgensen was the first public American transsexual in 1953. And, um, and then in... And Harry Benjamin, well, I mean, first the Danish doctors were overwhelmed by requests, and then the, the they taught American doctors, including Harry Benjamin. And it was a thing. And in 1968, he wrote The Transsexual Phenomenon, which is, he did a wonderful job for the time. And his gender spectrum had six stops along the gender spectrum. Today, there are probably 6,000. Um, but in those days, he had six. And I was on that spectrum. I recognized myself as that. There was a book called Psychological Sexualists from the 19th Century. I read all the stuff that had anything to do with that. And they talked about trans, uh, sexual transvestite and that gray area in between uh, and I read all those things. I read Harry Benjamin. And, you know, did I relate to Christine Jorgensen? I did not. You know, Christine Jorgensen had her operation at 21. You know, she had joined the army to try to fit in as a man. It was a terrible failure. You know, I was better at being male than she was. You know, I was not that isolated from my male identity. But it wasn't what I wanted. You know, I always thought, as I got older, I would outgrow these feelings. Uh, and instead, they got stronger and uh, more pronounced. And, um, and so I, 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 <clears throat> I couldn't really find the answers I was looking for for me. And so, like many others, um, you know, substances, alcohol, drugs entered and I sustained myself for that for nearly over 20 years until I became homeless but you know my the desire to take action I mean I I was so lost sexually you know, ages of 16 to 21, really, I didn't, you know, those are the great golden era of being a teenager, you know, and, and my memories, I learned to fit in. I don't remember junior high school, 13 to 15. I remember virtually nothing of it. High school, I learned to fit in better, and, uh, and I was funny and friendly, and, um, uh, and still obsessed. I was a, a jock. You know, I was a varsity athlete in high school. Um, 
But I, I started drinking and smoking cigarettes and then and then smoking pot all before uh, I got out of high school. Again, this would be the late 1960s. Um, Do you remember when you first started drinking and smoking, um, specifically weed, how that affected your relationship to yourself um, and to the people around you? You know, at first, when I started smoking pot, I first started smoking pot in, I would say, 1968. I was 17. It was explosive. It was extraordinary. It was a different world. Um, it changed everything. Uh, in those days, pot was so simple. It was nothing like today. It was Colombian. was really good. Mexican could could be hit or hit or miss. Michelin was good, you know. It was just, and what it did is it redirected my my essence. You know, my gender identity became hidden. It became subjugated to this new awareness of this inner world that had nothing to do with my confusion. Um, so I, I, I mean, once I started smoking pot, and then in those days we would smoke hash. Um, before I went away to college, I did LSD. And, you know, there's this whole new awareness. And... What it did is it took away my obsession with gender identity and gender expression. It added zero to it, and it was amazing distraction. Amazing. It was perfect for me. Because now what I could do is pretend to be a guy better. You know, now I was just going to be a hippie. I was going to be a stoner. And... I mean, during, I, I didn't really, when I went away, high school, I was very popular, very well known. I was, I hung out with smart kids with the jocks. I hung out with the theater kids. I was mostly backstage, although as a senior, they, they threw me on the stage. Um, I played a character, a drunk who wakes up and is now married to a, a young boy dressed as a woman, sort of act all this out on stage. And uh, and it, they thought it was funny because I was known as a jock and one of the smart kids, and here I am acting. And uh, so that was fun. And um, But other than that, when I went away to school, the only constant companion I had was drugs. I didn't... I hated weekends because people would have lives. They would interact and and i didn't do any of that you know i was completely isolated um and so to feel less isolated i did more drugs and so it was creating a spiral and so rather than and what happened when i was by the time i was 19 i was doing so many drugs i started drinking to offset the to offset the effect and then so now, not only was I doing lots of drugs, now I was drinking every day on top of it. And uh, 
my second school, the first school was the student rebellion after Kent State. And that was terrible. And I, it, it cost a fortune and I felt horrible. So I went to a state school upstate. I flunked out of my second school because of my drug use. Um, my grades were so bad, I had to, um, I, I took a year off once I got out of the draft. I, I then went to night school, got somewhat better grades. You know, it was a mystery because here I was, I was very bright, very knowledgeable, and yet I could not perform in a university setting. So I started at night school, and then eventually I was able to go to day school. I ended up going to four undergraduate schools. I tried to get a master's degree. Um, the one consistent thing was drugs and alcohol. And this is all in my early 20s. Uh, and, you know, I dabbled in cross-gender behavior. Um, I was all, you know, th those are the years. So in 19, when I was 20, college kids wore a uniform, especially those upstate. So, I, and, and the uniform was, was jeans and, um, jeans and, and work boots and, and everyone wore it and it drove me crazy. And, uh, and I dated a girl who was much more flamboyant than that. And at one point I told her, I said, you know, I, um, let, me, let me wear your clothes. Let me see what that's like. And so I liked it. She didn't. Um, I thought it was fun and cool. In the end, it got too much for her. And also, I was changing I could the drugs and the alcohol were no longer preventing me from having real feelings about my gender identity and and we broke up I think within a month she met someone very much like me who wasn't obsessed with cross-gender and from what I heard they married and had a life and um, I've looked for her a little through the years, but not all that hard. Um, I first went out uh, in public, I guess I must have been 25. I was in Albany, graduate school. Graduate school didn't work. Um, too much cross-gender obsession, too much drugs. And, you know, I was great at quitting. I was really good at that. And, you know, when, when things get tough, I quit. Did it all the time. How did it feel when the gender thoughts started coming in when you were getting high? And it was no longer that escape and distraction. Um, I, I was... obsessed with wanting to be more involved in cross-gender behavior. Again, though, I was a jock, you know, I was, there was really, you know, nothing feminine. You know, I had been socialized as, as, a, as a guy. Um, I was sort of a guy on the outside, although I was a lot quieter than a lot of the guys. I was, I didn't date all that much. Um, 
I dated infrequently. And when I did, I sort of pretended. I didn't really feel much of anything. I, I was shocked that, that people were so excited about this. I think I met my first gay couple. I must have been 25. This would have been the mid-70s. And um, one I played softball with, and he had a, he had a, a white boyfriend and uh, who was very soft and effeminate and he was african-american and he was my teammate on the on the the ball team and um but i would hang out with them and just because you know i want to know more i want to know more here are these two men living together as a couple and i want to know more and um Once I quit graduate school, I came back to New York and a friend of mine was working at the airlines and he had gay friends. And so I started hooking up with them. And and so we made one of his friends, we made a deal that there was a bar he wanted to go to and he didn't want to go alone. So I went with him. And there was a bar that I had heard of that I wanted to go to and he would go with me. And so I went with him to the anvil. And it was crazy. It was very, very masculine, very leather, very public sex, very sex, drugs, rock and roll, loud, completely pitch black. Guy dancing in the bar eventually became the Indian from the village people. But in those days, he was a a go-go boy um, dressed as an Indian. I mean, that's where they found him. these were all prototypes in, in those days. We're talking the early 1970s. And the bar I went to was a transgender, transsexual hangout called the Gilded Grape on 8th Avenue. And it was 1976. And I went for the first time in December. In some ways, I never left. You know, it was just the most unbelievable thing I'd ever seen. Um, it was a whole culture of cross-gendered people. Some of them were the most beautiful women in New York. Others were more on the fringe. The place was filled with guys running after them. The vast majority were Latina or African-American. There was a show element involved. There was a hangout. They were all working. It was the only job any of them could get was hustling. There were no other. Either you had to be so perfectly flawless to hide your gender identity or you would hustle there or you'd work at the bar as a bartender and, um, And I was enthralled by this world, that this culture. I I have a hundred stories of all the different people I've met. From those days, a handful are still left. A handful. You know, even then... A handful, a tiny handful, Um, you know, between drugs and AIDS and violence and the life, you know, they didn't, a 
a writer named Jerzy Kozinski, a Polish writer uh, who escaped, I think, after World War II, wrote a series of these urban novels, and and there was always a trans component in them because apparently he was as enthralled by this as I was. And in one one of his books, he had a um, at one of the bars. There was a secret room, and that's where all the trans women over the age of forty, the crones, would go. And um, uh, because in those days, any trans women that lived to be over 40 there was no role for them what they would do is they would become like aunties and they would just they would take care of their children of female relatives they would help the young girls coming up there would be no role for them they couldn't work anymore as hustlers do you know how they made made ends meet no um i mean i i knew a gal that they did hair Nail salons, bartender, I, you know, I, I would have to go back, you know, in those days I was in my 20s, so I didn't really care about the older ones. Um, that was not my interest. Mm. Um, you know, some were very, you know, some of them were icons for the period. This is a little before Studio 54. This is that change from the hippie time into the disco time and in disco New York, you know, these were all, some of these girls were icons. They were just amazing. And, um, um, the Gilded Grape was very, very well known in 8th Avenue. And, and then they opened another place called, uh, Gigi Knickerbockers, Gigi for Gilded Grape, Knickerbockers, the Barnum Room. And it was like, four rooms and the main room had a disco trapeze up there and it was the most extraordinary trans nightclub ever in the history of New York. And, um, you know, every night there'd be, and in time, straight people heard about it and they would start to come and be part of the scene. But my memory is there'd be hundreds of people. You'd have trans people. You'd have people that like trans people. And then you had gay people, straight people, and it was just, and of course in these days, you know, I had discovered that there was a drug that I could take that would, I drove in those days, I would get in car accidents all the time because of my drinking, I would black out. And so, so I started doing cocaine and, um, and so I wouldn't get in a car accident. So I always had cocaine and um, and they the girls knew that and that was sort of my role there you know I would hang out and uh, and I had coke and um, um, but it was a huge huge problem for me I always did much more than they did I mean, that was the beginning of a serious serious problem for me after Barnum Room closed down, there was a series of others. There was Sally's Hideaway. Then Sa after that burned down, Sally's too. There was Casa Dario. There was the Grapevine. You know, and uh, moth these are all mafia places. And so, and that there was a component. There were people within the mob that had a, that saw this as a money maker, and and this would have all been in the mid seventies to. early 80s eventually my 
drug habit got to the point where I had to move into a much less exclusive neighborhood. I couldn't afford to pay quality rents anymore. So I moved into, I guess, what I'd call a working class neighborhood in Queens. Um, How were you making money during that time? So I, uh, I came back from graduate school in 1976. Uh, I was able to get a job. And so it was a classic double life, you know, where I, I had this straight life. Well, I had this day job because I was still clever. I was a college graduate. And then I'd have when those days was weekends, you know, where I would enter this other world of cross-gender people. And, um, you know, next thing I know, it'd be 4 o'clock on Sunday, 5 o'clock on Sunday. Um, but I would spend, you know, some time, a lot of time, most of my time, and eventually all my time in this other and um, my drug use took my life away. And there was, and so I, at one point, I I was living sharing a two bedroom apartment in Jackson Heights. Then I moved to Brooklyn Heights, and then it, it just got too much, and um, and so I moved into a small one bedroom near the railroad tracks off the seven train in Queens. I lived there until I stopped paying rent and I got it. I lost, I got evicted from that. At one point, my drug habit was so bad that I left the country for three years to get away from cocaine. So, from 79 to 82, I lived overseas. Where were you? I lived in Israel on an overseas construction project, building an airbase for the Israelis. And I lived in Tel Aviv for six months. And living in the city without cocaine made me crazy. And so I moved into the desert, and I lived in the desert for two and a half years. No temptations. I was an all-or-nothing kind of girl. And, you know, I had to live in an environment with nothing. And, um, you know, there were... 200 Americans, 100 British, and 2,000 men from Thailand on this job site. You know. And, you know, again, among the guys, you know, I was great at playing ball, but I was different. When you think of a construction worker, I was hardly not, I was hardly the type. Um, and the women liked me there because I was safe. I wasn't crazy. I wasn't overly aggressive. I wasn't aggressive at all. and uh, It's very funny. I was always, until I transitioned, I was always one of the girls. It was after, once I transitioned, though, that that role became complicated to fit in with all the straight women. But up until I transitioned, I was always one of the girls. You know, I can think of college, it'd be seven women and me hanging out, you know. Not unusual at all. And, uh, um, what about being without drugs, specifically cocaine, do you think um, made you, as you said, crazy while you were out in the desert and in Israel? 
Like, what kind of thoughts were you having? What kind of feelings were you having in your body? You know, we worked, when I was in Israel, we worked 11 hours a day, six days a week. Um, and I, I worked. I drank all the time. I played ball. Goofed around. You know, I drank. I drank, and I lived with the secret that my gender identity was different, and I was able to get this job and pay off all my drug debts and save money. I'd never saved money in my life. I mean, it was, I had no disposable income. I spent it all on drugs. Um, when I came back from Israel, I could have bought an apartment for cash in Chelsea had, had I had the wherewithal, which I did not. All my money disappeared on, um, on drugs two years after I came back. I must have saved in 1980s dollars, probably had 60, 65,000 in the bank. You know, and it gone in two years. I frightened people. I frightened my drug deal. I was spending it so fast on drugs. How quickly it went. I'll take care. You know, I'll look for a job tomorrow. I'll look for a job tomorrow. Two years went like that. I was broke again. With a drug habit again. What, um, so... Feelings? What kind of feelings did I have? I didn't. I didn't. I, I had... I was carrying around the secret that got bigger and bigger. You know, I thought, well, well, maybe I, a, I, a trans girlfriend, maybe a trans wife. And I tried that and it was like, gosh, I don't know. This doesn't make me feel any better. Actually, it's making me worse. Um, you know, I would have trans roommates when I lived in, in Queens. But they were all escorts, you know, so it would be really complicated. And um, and my drug habit got worse. And now I had drug-addicted escort roommates that didn't help either. And, um, you know, my life had become quite chaotic. And, you know, it was water going down a drain. You know, and and what started as a hobby and something magical, you know, became a parasite that I couldn't get off. I could not escape from it. Um, and then it became simple. You know, I, I've after all my money was going to drugs, then I stopped paying rent. And six months after I did that, I was evicted. And my escort roommate called me at work. I had had a corporate job. I was struggling mightily. I thought they didn't realize what trouble I was. They, of course, all realized that how come, you know, this person's really right. Why are they struggling so badly? And it, was, it was, I assume it was obvious me. I would never tolerate an employee, a Melissa employee like I was in those days. Never. Never. But they tolerated me. 
until I became intolerable. <laughs> um, lost my home, went to rehab, came out of rehab, tried to get sober. Eventually they fired me. The alcoholism they could have dealt with, but the, the drug abuse was... Was the drugs other than cocaine? Well, the, the snorting took too long, so I learned to smoke it. You know, smoking crack was a, probably the best idea I had in the 1980s, learn how to smoke crack. So that was awful. That was truly awful. I, the last two years, you know, it was awful. You know, in retrospect at that time, you know, I... I on the, the Fridays I would get paid, my money, my paycheck would all be gone by Sunday. And then on the weeks I wouldn't get paid, I would have to go to my parents' house since I hadn't eaten in three days. And then I would take money from them. Those last two or three years were the worst. You know, it was, you know, uh, you know, I was lost. I was lost, and uh, losing my home was the best thing that ever happened to me. And in rehab, I told him, I said, I hate being a guy. I, I've been hanging around with transsexuals for 15 years, and I don't understand. And they went, oh, we have no idea what you're talking about. If you go to the gay center on West 13th Street, and I did, and they had the gender identity project there. It started the year before, and I went there, and the gender identity project, they weren't all disco queens. They weren't all models. They weren't all escorts. They were people starting a journey, male-ish people like me, and some had transitioned, some were transitioning, some wanted to transition, some are, will never transition, but they were all in the room. And, and we get a chance to talk about what's going on. And uh, I had, the only time I'd ever seen trans people was late at night after I had four or five drinks and a ton of cocaine. So this was a revelation. And, uh, and within three months, I started talking about transitioning, and uh, and I started to dress more appropriately for a trans person. And they said, "Oh, you're doing great! You're doing great!" To my face, behind my back, they said, "This one never, never," um, which was fine, and. I, you know, I told my my assistant at work that I was going to do this. And I was, uh, my appearance was starting to change. I started on hormones, and two weeks after I started hormones, I was fired. Um, and this was May nineteen ninety one. Where were you employed that fired you? Well, I'm not going to mention them. It was a it was a corporation. They were a hops merchants, hops and beer. Beer would taste and smell like 
oatmeal that you get a buzz. Hops give it an aroma, gives it a taste. You know, malt, alcohol, yeast, it's not going to have any taste. So hop, so these are hops merchants selling hops to breweries all over the world. So I was involved in that. I thought it was, you know, for an alcoholic, I thought it was a clever idea when I came back from overseas. It was a terrible idea. Um, and I was working there, and then I wasn't. And uh, they gave me a reasonable settlement, translation. Um, we don't know what's going on with you, but we're going to give you enough that you'll go away and not sue us. And and that worked, you know, and I had enough money to live on for a year. I spent it all on electrolysis. I found a place to live, one room to live in 14th Street, right near the stroll. In those days, the Gansevoort district, meatpacking district, was a literal meat market, and the meat guys would be there from you know, from four in the morning till noon, and then they'd leave, and then the girls would take over, and that was the stroll. And I moved two blocks from that. I figured anything that I was going to do had been done a thousand times before. In fact, um, RuPaul and her friends also lived right there in the stroll in the meat market. When they first moved here from Atlanta, uh, they moved, and they lived in a place, in fact, in Sex in the City, they show where she lives um, uh, is right near uh, on Little West 12th Street, right where the straw was. And in fact, Lady Bunny today lives um, two blocks from that area too because she was part of that crowd. And I had gotten to know her. And, um, Were um, you yourself doing sex work at that time? At When I was early on, I would go to the, the bars and hang out and do anonymous sex. Uh, that's the trans experience I knew. Um, it was okay. Sometimes it was fun. You know, I really, I got a kick out of it. It was the idea that I could be a desirable female. You know, we're talking the first two, three years. And uh, I didn't really have a real, I had a gigs. I had two cocktail waitress. I had a great cocktail waitress job on 14th and 8th. And so Lady Kateria, long gone, former Miss Continental. And they had the Continental girls would do all the entertainment. So all the guys would come. But these girls were, they were all in relationships. They were unapproachable. And here I was, the cocktail waitress. So I would get the leftovers and I would charge them money and it helped pay the rent. You know, I, I lived around the corner from the bar. What could be perfect? So they're at 14th and 8th. I'm between, on 14th, between 7th and 8th. And, I mean, so I started Hormones in 91. My first full-time job was 94 in Gay Games. It was a temporary job. And then I got hired at Gay Men's Health Crisis in 96. And I was made redundant after a year and a half. And I started working part-time at the credit union. I start, I worked there 20 hours a week as a debt collector. And then I would be a cocktail waitress at night. And then what happened is the credit union saw that I was clever. 
and they made me full time, and then they made me a manager, and uh, eventually I became a director at the credit union. I stayed there for 19 years. The bar fired me when they realized how much money I was really making. They they covered my shifts when I wasn't there, and the promoter was fucking pissed because I'm when you when you have a gig like that that's based on her. You got to give her a percentage, and she realized I was way undercutting her. She had no idea how much money I made, and I'm like, girl, I I got to pay the rent. And she's like, girl, I don't give a fuck. You're fired. Um, but that was okay. So, Gay Games was '94. I I full time the credit union was November 1997. So, and I got fired in '91. So. You know, three years really, just working gigs, whatever I could find, telephone sales. I did all sorts of crazy things. I was too old to do sex work. I was already over forty, right? Yeah. Um, but I made ends meet, and my rent seven hundred a month on my Fourteenth Street one room. My room was a about like this. I lived there for 12 years. Um, after at Gender Identity Project, they were so, they thought I was clever. And, um, and they had me doing um, peer counseling. Um, and so, you know, oh, Gender Identity Project. So I started, um, they had me becoming a peer counselor and then I would lead groups and then I would, I would be a counselor. You know, I would, I had an office and I would have clients and we would talk. And the fact is that people had gender identity needs and there were no resources there were there was nothing there there was gender identity project i mean aids was invented in new york gay aids in 1981 rare cancer seen in 41 homosexuals this month is last week was the anniversary of the new york times story talking about strict rare cancer in 41 homosexuals, and it was the beginning of coverage of HIV AIDS, and I mean, I was at GMHC, I started in 94, you would see people and they'd be gone in a month, and then I was there in 96 when they invented protease inhibitors, and people stopped dying, and, um, but other than, but there were no resources, the gay community invented all this on their own. No one would help them. No government would help them. I'm sure you're familiar with GMHC, the story of GMHC, where gay men came together to create their own resource because the closeted gay mayor was afraid to help them, that it would spill over on him. Um, and so that was that time. And, and there were no resources. And so I said, well, I knew people. I had been in the neighborhood. So let me see what I can do. And at one point, there was a 
gentrification of the meat market, they wanted to do something with the land that they wanted to improve the quality of life in that area. And yet there were all these trans working girls. And so they had a, a town hall on what to do about them. And the language was very anti-sex work, and then it became very anti-trans. And so at Gender Identity Project, they told me about it. I said, I'll go. I'll go and represent. And I did. So 200 neighbors from the community and me to be a can. The cops, community, the elected officials, and I show up representing the community. And... Um, And I countered their rage with my own. You know, I wasn't, I got to speak publicly much better, but mostly I sputtered with rage. You know, this is not a game. This is people's lives. And, you know, this has been our area for years. And you all bought here because it was dirt cheap, because... It was filled with carcasses. You know, the, the animal ones at night and, and the girls during the day. And and now you, the value of your properties are going up and you're going to treat these girls like they're the carcasses. And, um, and the elected officials were not offended. Actually, they thought it was pretty cool that someone from the trans community would show up and I became friendly and then friends. And then they got even with me. They put me on the community board. And that was in, I don't remember, maybe 2000, 2000. And I started getting involved in neighborhood and community and et cetera. We can talk about all that if you want. Yeah, I'd love to. And by that time, you had also become an elected delegate. I I started, we started promoting, there was a group of us in the mid-90s, one of the leaders of our gender identity project group. All the rest of us, you, you would have laughed. I mean... We're talking 20 years ago, and we would all wear our, our special girly outfits and all of our makeup and all this and the high heels. And there'd be this one fucking crazy person with very short hair and sweats bouncing a basketball. And her name, well, her name was Ricky Ann Wilkins, and she said, you people have it all wrong. You think that the goal of all this is to pretend you're always born women and disappear. But that's not what this is going, that's not what's going to happen. You've got to stand up and own your identity, not only for yourselves, but for everyone. And we said, girl, you're fucking crazy. That's not how it's done. The way it's done is, is you get what needs to be done to look like you were born female and disappear. And she says, no. You stay and stand and fight. And two years later, I said, okay, this resonates. I studied political science, you know, and I, 
And so I had a sense that Denise Norris was her right-hand gal, and the two of them were like, you know, the transsexual menace based on lesbian menace, you know. And, um, you know, Rick, Ricky would go to uh, the Women's Michigan Festival and Camp Trans and all this, and they had a fundraiser, and it must have been 97, and here I am, a baby trans. And, and to go to this event and all for the first time in my life, I feel heroic for being trans. I've never felt that before. To go into this fundraiser and people's eyes are glistening with excitement and enthusiasm. And um, and so we said, well, well, gays and lesbians have civil rights in New York, but trans people don't. The language has to be different. So uh, trans people invented trans-inclusive language. We discussed it. We had a group called Niagara in those days. In those days, it was democratic. That ended in time. But in those days, it was democratic. I was involved. There were a group of us. Carrie Davis was involved. A slew of people. Um, I think Ricky at this point had moved to D.C. Ricky started a group called Gender Pack. And we were like, okay. A transgender political group. How cool is this? We went to D.C. and we lobbied. It's like, this is weird. And of course, I ooze trans shame. You know, it's like, well, I do okay. I'm a little person. You know, I can I can wiggle with the best of them. You know, got good at makeup. But some of the others were obviously trans. And I was insanely uncomfortable to be around them. You know, 6'2 and 6'3 and awkward and, and but we did this you know we were this was the Clinton years and we started to teach well in those days we had no friends so Democrat Republican didn't matter they all thought we were freaks but Ricky was adamant Ricky and her team um, eventually she stayed in D.C. This is a precursor to NTAC, precursor to NCTE. Eventually, Ricky fell in love and her companion felt left out of gender pact. And so they changed the mission from gender identity to gender and people felt betrayed. Our leader was leaving us. And so that's where NTAC came in and then all that. And that's where NCT came in. But, and so I involved as a trans person in trans politics, selling trans ideas to straight people. And, duh, people that are interested in the future got it immediately. People that were confused were willing to listen. And haters are going to hate that. As that prophet, as that sage Taylor Swift says, haters are going to hate, you know, and then as anything, it falls among political lines that, you know, reactionaries are not interested. And so we, we got nowhere in New York City. We tried for years, I would say three years, convincing Giuliani, Peter Vallone, who was a speaker for 20 years, we got nowhere, but what was happening is Niagara started lobbying 
Tom Twain was a gay guy in, in city council. Um, and genius, and uh, Margarita Lopez, lesbian in city council and a woman of color. And she said, you know, don't worry about the white gay guy, the white guy, people of color, they know discrimination. Lobby them first. And you're going, well, of course, in those days, for us white people, it was revolutionary. Fucking revolutionary. Our natural allies are not going to be white people, but people of color. And that's what we did. And we went and we started lobbying them. And in the election, it must have been 1998, the state senator for Greenwich Village ran for attorney general and lost. And so Tom Dwayne became, took the state senator's slot, and his former chief of staff, redheaded gal named Christine Quinn, became the council person. And I helped with the campaign. You know, I had gotten to know Tom. Tom and I were, were friends. And they had a, in those days, Greenwich Village had three different political groups. I won't, briefly, you had the Gay and Lesbian Progressives, Tom and Chris's group. You had the, um, the straight liberals. And then you had the Ed Koch Democrats. And each of these three groups it was civil war in Greenwich Village, you know. So the, the the straight liberals were led. Deborah Glick, even though she was a lesbian, was part of that group. Our group was raggier and more liberal, a little bit more lefty. And the Ed Koch Democrats were like status quo. They were the nearest thing to status quo in Greenwich Village. You're not going to have Republicans, but and these three groups, and so. There's these tiny local contests, and um, and they said, "Well, we're going to have you run on county committee." I said, "That's awesome! Yay!" You know, there are, there are 120 members of the county committee, New York County, and I said, "Great! That's really exciting. Thank you for considering me." You know, my my election district was was the 14th Street between 7th and 8th on the south side, 13th Street between 7th and 8th on the north side, and then that little bit of 7th and 8th Avenue. That was the whole district. I mean, there were, you know, 5,000 people there. And then a couple of weeks later, they said, listen, how would you like to be a judicial delegate? And I said, wow, what is that? And they said, what happens is we have 11 slots here. You know, there are going to be a total of about 70 in to pick judges. We want you to be in our slate. But we're going to have to run a campaign. And I said, wow, this is something. This is amazing to be one of 11 people from the entire neighborhood. We're talking, you know, of 
50,000 voters and, and there are 11 slots among them, and I'd be one of the 11. And it was me and Tom, Tom set this up and the head of Gay and Lesbian Independent Democrats was a, uh, he eventually, his name, the president was Kevin Finnegan. He's now the political director of 1199. But in those days, this will be great. You'll be in our slate. You'll be one of our 11 candidates. Wow, amazing. Wow, I'm really, yeah, you'll have to fund it. Great. I, of course, you'll be the first transactor. I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a minute. You mean I have to run publicly? And they go, yeah. It would be cool. It would be new. It would be different. It would be eye-catching. No one's ever done it before. And I said, and I said yes, and um, and we did all that, and I ran, and I I fundraised. I, I my campaign literature was cute and interesting and unique. And I won. I got one of the 11 slots. I think we did pretty good. We got about maybe seven. Deborah's group got maybe three, maybe, you know, six, three, two, something like that. We got the majority. And for the first time for the Judicial Convention, New York Times covered it with my picture on the front. You know, the, the, um, they gave me a role a seconding speech one of the judges it was amazing Tom was my great mentor a great benefactor I was in the out 100 that year 1999 you know of course someone like you you take a look what is it like to transition you know before social media before computers before cable TV and so to have Tom in my corner was amazing. And people wanted to know about this new thing, and he would direct them to me. And um, I got to speak at rallies. You know, here we have the leading Democrats of the neighborhood, of the county, and, 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 and Melissa Scores. And so one year I spoke at the, the rally in front, in, the pre-Pride rally, in those days it was in Bryant Park. You know, I get up and speak in front of a thousand people. Nervous. And it, it gave me a platform. And it was a role. And, you know, a transsexual has run for political office and won. Now, if you're going to say, well, it's not a public office, it's true. And is it a big deal? Yes. Yes. It's a new idea. You know, they don't compare the Wright brothers flying Kitty Hawk to the, um, the Challenger going to the moon, you know. But it was a big, big deal. And, you know, it's the, the kind of thing where in gay games in 1994 in New York, the rules for transsexuals to compete in gay were stricter than the Olympics. And so we had a committee led by Ricky Ann Wilkins 
this is bullshit. And there, Ann Northrop was on the board, and she says, these people are correct. And so she was our bridge. And they changed the rules to make it easier for, in those days, the language was transsexuals to compete. The gay game, you didn't need bottom surgery. That if you were trans-identified, trans you could compete. Everyone's happy, and Ricky's looking there, giving them the stink eye. But, well, if you really cared about trans people, you'd hire trans people. And the board looked at her, looked at themselves, looked at her, looked at them, and they, well, none have ever applied. So I get a phone call. Apply to gay games. So I did, and they hired me, you know. And I, at GMHC, new policy. Here we are in those days, staff, 150 people. New policy, the board, all the staff, very democratic. Then that, then we're going to do this, 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 this. Raise my hand, stand up. How does this new policy affect transgender people? Silence. Directors all look at one another, whisper, executive director, I don't know, Melissa, we'll get back to you. And I learned then, you know, if not me, then who? If not now, then when? And all I, all I did was stand up and represent the point of view of a community. I was not HIV positive. In time, race, and class determine all these things. But it was powerful. It was, I mean, the response I got from that assembly of do-gooders, of people fighting death, the response I got was overwhelming of support. And um, now they've got a, a trans gal who's a director there. And, uh, I was an administrative assistant. I was a receptionist. I got promoted to an administrative assistant. That was... That was very cool. I was hoping to be an assistant director someday. They eliminated my job before. They, they even tried to mix the budget to find a slot for me. They were told no. I wrote a blistering letter of outrage to the board of directors. I was a bridge burner in those days. Anyway, that's how it started. And you know what? I'm clever. You know, and um, I'm clean and sober now, 26 years. You know, I've learned about building esteem. I've learned about the difference between what's my stuff and what's other people's stuff. Um, I've built careers. I've reconciled ish with family. I take risks. You know, I, I don't burn bridges. I try not to attack others, let people have their way. Um, I mentor young people. You know, this idea it can't always be about me. My role is to mentor the next generation, and in my case, even the next generation. And the fact that I gave up on white people a long time ago because in America, white people do okay, even white trans people. You know, people of color always struggle in America. And so my mentees are 
are a generation of community college. And I've given as much as I can. And most will tell you that. You know. Um, and that's a good thing. That's community empowerment. And I mean, I, I remember when Laverne Cox was a, a baby and coming to me and to wanting to know about activism, you know. She had a production company with Eric and, and we did a thing. What happens is trans was a temporary medical identity that you, you embraced it, you changed it, and then disappeared. And Ricky Ann, at least in New York, you know, was, who was first? Kate Bornstein or Ricky Ann? I don't know. Let them tell you that. But it was that time. And I thought Ricky Ann was crazy until it made sense for me. Were, do people think I was born female? I don't know. I don't really care. I've built a path that works for me and I've made it work and I've tried to make a difference, you know, because I'm interested in policy and politics. You know, I've done things. I'm, I first trans delegate Democratic Convention in New York. I've been part of the last four delegations for the last four conventions. First trans person in America to be in the Electoral College. President of Stonewall Democrats, I'm board co-chair of Empire State Pride Agenda, I've been board co-chair of National Stonewall Democrats. Now I'm here, trans people with a trans-run organization raising money for trans community. Genius. You know. Difficult to genius. You know, I found a voice, and um, people say a lot of nice things about me. I no longer flinch. I no longer argue with them. I let them say what they want to say. I've been involved the, you know, the different, the, the political environment has changed. You know, I'm a, among a small group of people that has taught, the Democratic Party taught, progressive candidates and elected officials with trans is. I'm not the only one. I'm virtually the only one still involved in public policy. There was a group of us, 10, 12 people. Some are, are gone. Some have moved away. Some have just stopped. You know, how many how many times you can you fight and lose and fight and lose? Um, some have gone on to other things. But, I mean, I can, a hundred conversations, a thousand conversations with elected officials. What is trans? Why is trans? Who's affected? Why? How? Where? Is this about me? It's about us. It's about you. Here's why it's about you. I've had relationships with last four governors. So many elected officials. And I've taught them all. And those that believe in the future embrace it. And those that are open-minded will listen. And haters are going to hate. Some 
We have a state senator whose initials are Andrew Lanza, and we try to convince him that trans civil rights in New York State matter. And he goes on this whole, he fights it off like Captain America uses his shield. And it's like, Andy, it's the law of Staten Island of your home where you're raising your children. We're just trying to export it throughout the state. It's not new. It's not different. It's the law of your district. And he still doesn't support. Marty Golden, same in Brooklyn, doesn't support. Ruben Diaz Sr. Bronx doesn't support. It's the law of New York City. Nope. Haters are going to hate. How has trans visibility um, both in the media and internet communities changed and how does that affect how public policy is maneuvered? You know, visibility changes everything. You know, it, it's you know, Candace Kane was a revelation in Dirty Sexy Money to be a trans woman on a regular TV. You know, Laverne was a, a revelation to be trans on uh, Orange is the New Black. You know, um, Caitlyn Jenner, you know, before Caitlyn Jenner, 5-10% of Americans knew a trans person. After Caitlyn Jenner, now everyone knows a trans person. The fact that it's Caitlyn Jenner is unfortunate, but now they know what trans is. And you know what? Caitlyn Jenner thought all of her money would protect her, just like I thought my drugs and alcohol would protect me. And it didn't. And she thought it would protect her. If I live in this mountaintop in Malibu, surrounded by all my money, then I, can, I won't have to ever do this. If I father 10 children, then I won't have to do this. And she was wrong, just like she's with her politics. And she was wrong. In the end, the feeling on the inside overwhelms. You know, I'm not going to name names. Some of the, the public trans people I, are silly, dumb. But you know, we don't have elected officials. We have failed. We have been unable to overcome that. And so now we have models are our community spokespeople and, you know, pretty girls. Look, I mean, Janet, Janet has written two books and Laverne is, is an amazing icon. And, but some of the others are like, you know, um, and now it's up to us. There's never been a trans person as a member of a state legislature. Never member of Congress. You know, the trans people that are elected are these tiny little towns. We have Jess in, in now this tiny town in Texas. We have Jackie Ryan in the school board in this tiny town in Massachusetts. So it's something. It's something. You know, in 2000, there was one trans delegate at the Democratic Convention. 2004, there were six of us. Then there were 10 of us. Last year, there were 25 of us. And from all over, you know, and, you know, you know, it's one thing to be a trans person representing a deep red state like Georgia or Utah. I mean, you don't have any 
other Democrats, but for me to represent New York, to be one out of millions. You know, New York has 12 New York states, 18 million, probably 10 million people vote, probably 7 million are Democrats. I'm one out of 7 million. And to uh, 27 electoral votes in the room and be the only trans person. It's a cool thing. You know, I. What comes first is media representation or, or elected officials. You know, were there were there gay actors that led to Harvey Milk or the other way around? You know, who's to say? Did do you know who Paul Lind is? No, I don't. You know, Salminio. You know, there were there were people that were Liberace, Richard Simmons. I mean, Harvey Milk said you got to come out and you got to stand up and be proud. And did Harvey Milk create media icons or was it the other way around? I don't know. In our culture, the media icons come first. Now, media, we've had a social media revolution. You know, there are people all over the country that are famous for having a, their blog or their Instagram account or their Facebook. You know, we all have a presence. We're all journalists. We're all actors. We're all performers. So it's different. It's just different. Um, I spoke at a corporation last week. 250 staffers, video screens in their offices around the world. And I said, you know, to me, the, the icon, the future is not certainly Caitlyn Jenner. It's Jazz Jennings. You know, here's Jazz Jennings transitions at nine, goes on YouTube, becomes older, becomes more polished, talks about the process. You know, trans kids are going to become trans teens, become trans adults. What is the future of trans? Is it going to be a childhood malady? that people outgrow. Why wait now until you're 50 or 60? Now there's a roadmap. You don't have to suffer like Caitlyn Jenner or me into my 30s. You don't have to. Now there's a process on how it's done. And, you know, the, so much has changed. You know, I can remember trans life in the 70s. It was brutal. I vaguely remember the 80s, not my best decade. Um, HIV wiped out a generation of girls, you know. You know, the 90s was political awareness. You know, the zeros were the beginning of political power and strength. And today, social media revolution. We're all politicians. We're all activists. We're all celebrities. We're all stars. You know, social media does that. Um, now, we have a thousand gender identities. And what matters and what's important? You know, what matters and important to me, what matters and important to you may be two completely separate things. And you and I, you know, what does 2030 look like to, to both of us? How old are you? I'm 22. Yikes. So, what 
2030 looks like between you and me. What does 2030 look like to you? What is happening now is we're going to see people fixing their gender identity. We're seeing the reduction, dissolution of, of gender differences. The, the boundaries between male and female are disappearing. 2030, trans women will have babies. Um, you know, I, you know, when you, when you reach 12, one coming of age will be, you'll pick your gender. You will be male or female, both, neither, you know, um, when we invented not only gender identity, which I understood, but gender expression, which I did not, it's like gender expression is is the beginning of the dissolution between male and female. Oh, Melissa, you're just... And I was right. And our enemies said, what you're doing is taking away the boundary between male and female. I, I was not one of those warriors. I used to tell the people, you create the ideas, I'll sell them. What had happened is some of the ideas became very complicated. Some of the nuances of gender identity mostly gender expression, haunt us today, bathrooms, um, uh, documentation, because it, gender identity is easy. You take a look at me. It's like, well, Melissa, this thing, you're a girl. You should, you should get a girl passport. You should have a girl driver's license. But if we're going to make people do away with the boundaries between Oregon now is uh, ex-gender identity, but Oregon is very progressive. And some of these other states... Texas is taking away bathroom bills is not about going to the bathroom. It's about destroying transgender identity. It's telling them that we will not recognize transgender people. We will use the bathroom as a way to smack you down. We're telling you that we don't want to see you in public. It's not about using bathroom A or B. We don't want to see you in public. And so the, you know, the Obama years and the great LGBT victories, now we're seeing the terrible, terrible reaction. Are gay people safe? We'll see, but trans people are not. And now they're, the backlash against us, we're seeing it in Mississippi, we're seeing it in Texas. We're seeing a terrible, terrible person like like Pence and, and an, a moron like Trump and dangerous people like Gorsuch in the Supreme Court. You know, who speaks to transgender Americans? You tell me. Is it you? Is it me? Is it Laverne? You know, is it Jazz Jennings? Caitlin? Is it the person who has the most, the biggest but most followers on Twitter, are they the voice of the people? Is it an entertainer? Is it someone like me who's worked on birth certificates, passports? I mean, I don't know. What does 2030 look like? Uh, more freedom. This is a reaction. This is the end of the 20th century having an impact on policy. I hope.
Donald Trump is the ultimate 20th century man cast adrift into the 21st century. He's like in Jurassic Park, the T-Rex that escapes in San Diego 66 million years later and wrecks everything up because he's a, he's a creature that has no place in this moment. And that's what Trump is like. And he's that T-Rex breaking everything. You know, my concern about the future that you will write and I will not is how does a non-binary future look? How do you legislate it? How do you create laws, rules, guidelines in a non-binary culture? I have no idea. That's not my battle. My battle was to bring the culture to this point. It's for others to carry it from here. You know, I know Jacob Tobiah. I, you know, I, I get what they are doing. I don't understand how laws protecting them will look. Do they belong? What happens when bathrooms are gendered male and female? So maybe Jacob will lead that battle to eliminate gendered bathrooms I don't know does Jacob use a does Jacob in all of their female finery use a ladies room I have no idea and if they do what does it look like I don't know you know that is not my battle I will be supportive I'm hoping that progress moves forward that's why it's progress and that it's it's like the tide and Donald Trump can stand there and try to fight it. You know, there are just so many white people left to do make these kinds of laws. And um, we're not done to see what this terrible reaction looks like. Non-binary is not my battle. It's yours. You know, you're going to find what works. If I was an elected official, I would make bathrooms non-gendered. I guess single-stall bathrooms. Single-stall bathrooms are expensive. Multi-stall bathrooms are cheap. So who's going to pay for non-binary single-stall bathrooms that are much more expensive? Whose tax dollar? We're talking a part of the population. Trans is what? Three quarters of 1% of the population? And now we're going to spend double the money on single stall bathrooms so that a quarter of three quarters of 1% feel comfortable because they're non-binary? You'll figure. You can write to me in my retirement home in Florida. <laughs> one of my last questions is, one, when was the first time you heard the term transgender? And how has the development of language affected your own relationship and understanding of gender and yourself?
Um, I first heard the word transgender in 1990 in Gender Identity Project in the support group. It was a lightning bolt for me because transsexual was about bottom surgery and I was like, you know, I have so many other questions on top of that. Transvestite cross-dressing is being a guy and dressing up and it's like, that doesn't really seem like real life to me. And transgender was a lightning bolt that worked for me. This idea that the spectrum is much bigger than Harry Benjamin and his six stops. It's 600, it's 6,000, and I'm in that spectrum. And I get to be Melissa. I get to be Melissa, where my shape of my genitals is no one's business but my own, and I get to live my female life, and I get to relate to the world as a female, and the world generally relates to me as a female. And this is awesome. You know, if it was going to be a drag queen or Christine Jorgensen, I would have been lost. I would have drank myself to death. The idea that there is a range of options saved my life. I just thought it was genius. Now, I know a lot of transsexual people are over it. I know a lot of non-binary people are over it. Um, transgender itself is too awkward. It, trans is even better. Trans asterisk is stupid. Trans is fine the way it is. Um, you know, what happens is whatever the cultural context, political context is, transsexuals always end up at the bottom. Now we have Gender non-conforming. It's like, so now non-binary people. So here again, here's our transsexual revolution with again the transsexual people are pushed to the back by others. You know, transgender people, then trans people. Now it's gender non-conforming. Uh, now it's non-binary. And that, 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 and transsexual. Yeah, the fight continues. Language, language matters. The, our president ran on the idea of politically correct. And old people, you'll see a lot of older white icons complain about political correctness. And it's really important to allow new ideas to breathe. And some are really important and others are not. But we're only going to figure it out if we try. And so calling someone them and they, will it last the test of time? I don't know. Z and, and all that zir. You know, five years ago, that made sense. That doesn't seem to be working. But it, I'm not afraid of trying new ideas. And that includes language. Transsexual, transvestite. Look, I remember when when all we had were homosexuals. 
and you really want to call yourself something that is controlled by doctors, or do we get to seize our own identity? I want to seize our own identity. You know, don't put me in the transsexual, transvestite box. I'm trans. I create my own identity. Language helps people create their own identity. And by creating their own identity, people become empowered. And they become stable. I mean, people want life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And if, if new language, which our enemies call political correctness, help make people's lives meaningful and more stable. It's a beautiful thing. You know, who's the fool who says they know everything? The, the problem with Donald Trump is he, he's too dumb to not know what he doesn't know. I recognize there's a lot I don't know. And my friends in politics know they don't know everything. There are friends I've had for years and they still make dumb mistakes. I have the luxury, I have the privilege to allow them to continue to make mistakes. Um, but I'll remind them when they make them. But I won't hate them for it. I have privilege. I can afford that luxury. You know, all, I'm not in favor of all new ideas, but I'll listen to all of them. And some make perfect sense, just like transgender did, like a lightning bolt to me. And just like there are people out there that hear GNC, that's me. I'm gender non-conforming. What does that mean? I don't know. Well, I guess I'll have to wait till 2025 and figure out. Is it a permanent identity? I don't think so. But I may be wrong. Been wrong before. Are there any current political or social movements that you felt especially inspired or excited about? Oh, my darling, 2016's election um, was a stake to my heart. You know, I helped Hillary Clinton in 2001 when she ran in New York. I helped her in 2008 when she ran for president. And I was all in for 2016. And to see a right-wing demon version grow roots and become the narrative of the day by a generation that only know the demon version of her is the biggest political tragedy of my time. Do what happens next? I don't know. I thought Hillary was going to win and we would see the death of Reaganism, of this idea that cut away at... at taxation, creating a social net for everyone um, and force the more prosperous to pay their fair share. And now instead we have this Frankenstein monster who's more aggressively anti. Um, I look forward to the first trans person being elected to a state legislature. I think that'll be a revolution. I think this idea of special rights, all those things they used to say about the black uh, black people and the civil rights, it took black people 100 years from the Emancipation to the Civil Rights Act of 64. It took women 70 years 
to get the right to vote. 70 years to gay and lesbian people from Stonewall to marriage. You know, what are we talking, 30, 35 years? I think having a trans person in the state legislature, is Harvey Milk the first gay elected official? No, but he changed the conversation and is the spiritual father of generated a thousand gay elected officials that have come in his aftermath. So for me, as a mainstream political person, you know, we have people running now. I wish them well. We have Mel Wymore in, here in New York City. I wish him well. I gave money to Chrissy Browdy, who's running for town supervisor in Newcastle and Westchester. We had an event for her. I'm still not convinced. I had my turn came years ago, and I, I was afraid of my job. And I said, I'll do it next time without realizing, guess what? There may not be a next time. And I'm talking 2003. And there was an opportunity. And, um, and I didn't. And, you know, shoulda, coulda, woulda, kinda, sorta. Well, I won't do it this time. I'll do it next time. The fact is, you know, now there's the same thing again next year in State Assembly where I live in Queens. But I, I've got to have the fire in my belly. It's got to be the only thing that matters in my life. So for me as a mainstream political person, you know, that's really important. I would love to see someone elected to a state legislature in America. You know, that's the real deal. You know, all over the world, when gay people get elected to political office, the conversation changes. When lawmakers meet gays and lesbians, whether it's New York, whether it's Mississippi, the conversations change. They're no longer the creepy others. You know, they're our neighbors, they're our friends, they're our family. So I'm excited about that. As far as the new generation and non-binary, not my path. Go get them. I'm right behind you. Yay! But How have you been coping with the 2016 election? Badly. Badly. Uh, this year in New York City is a municipal election. We've got 100 people, 100 liberal Democrats running for seven or eight slots. Half of them have come to me asking for this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, no one was better prepared to be our, the leader of the free world than Hillary. And, um, And to win a majority of the vote and lose to this person, that the only thing we know for sure is he was on TV. And everything else about him is a myth. Without a record, we, have, we don't know a thing. Some have implied he's a Russian agent. We don't know. He won't tell us. He mocks us for even asking. You know, Bernie Sanders reached a point where they told him, you know, you could actually win. He says, wow. And he says, but here's what you've got to do. 
you've got to sell Demon Hillary. And he said, well, that's ridiculous. We've been friends for years. And they said, if you want to win, you have to sell Demon Hillary. And he said, okay. And so he sold Demon Hillary to a new generation of young people. And if they love Bernie, they bought the Demon Hillary. And when it came time when he did not win, and it came time to vote, enough stayed home where, where she, uh, she lost 77,000 votes, the difference between Hillary and Donald Trump, split between uh, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and uh, Wisconsin. And what happens now? God only knows. I've not recovered from 2016. I don't read the papers. I don't watch the news. I read the papers when the Mets win. Which is not a lot these days. You know, I'll be supporting Mayor uh, de Blasio for election. This is 2017. I'll probably support uh, Governor Cuomo for re-election in 2018. He's been very good to me. He's been very good to us, our transgender community. He has a weird way of doing politics. I have no control over that. He's done everything that I've asked him to do, with the exception of demanding the state legislation support transgender civil rights. He said, no, Melissa, I'm not going to use my political capital for three quarters of 1% of the population. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to challenge the haters to fight me in court. And no one did. And now transgender people have civil rights in New York State. Because the governor said, this definition of sex includes transgender people. Who of you wants to fight me in court? And no one did. you got 90 days to do it. And now it's the law of New York State. And if anyone wants to reverse it, they will have to go to court and fight in court. They can't just... A race. It's not an executive order. Um, and so I'm grateful to Governor Cuomo. The least I could do is support him in his political endeavors as he did his measure to help us. And that said, I, um, this year I was supposed to do petitions in my neighborhood. I did not, you know, even if I'm on it. Now I'm a judicial delegate every year in Queens, you know. But it's not 1999 anymore. Is there anything else you'd like to be remembered, you'd like to share? I would like the fact that, that like Elizabeth Warren, that I persevered, that I hung in there. You know, I did politics with Sylvia Rivera. Sylvia was right out of the 60s and 70s. I just would roll my eyes and shook my head. But I worked with her in, in you know, the 90s. Certainly not in the 70s. I was nowhere around. Um, and she liked me because I was a different kind of girl from the girls that she knew. The chaotic girls, the girls always in trouble, trying to escape drugs and violence. She lived on the piers for years. So I hung in there. I hung in there. I made friends. I communicated ideas. 
and one people to our point of view. Transgender people's lives are better because of the work that I helped do. Not alone, but I persevered. And now I help others. Thank you. Oh. I'm remembering now I made a flag to ask you more questions about homelessness in New York City, where you were, what resources were available to you, um, and what wasn't. Um, are you game to talk about that? Sure. Homelessness, um, when I moved to the uh, 14th Street, this is after the Christmas Street Pier of the 80s um, and before the Gens Award Special District, the Meat Packing District, when, when it was still the meat market. And that whole area was filled with homeless people living on the piers, including Sylvia Rivera. Um, you know, the 90s were horrible to New York. You know, crack ate everything. The real religion of New York City is money. It was in 1630 when they invented New York. It is today. You know, I do what I can to help LGBT homeless youth find housing. The fact is, everyone needs housing. The fact is, gentrification eats people's lives. The fact is that to watch white people push families of color out of neighborhoods they've been in for a hundred years is tragic. The f when I see a generation of African-American, older African-American men, men my age, why did I get access to college? And they didn't is because the GI Bill was for white people. And so the foundation of wealth for my family was the house my father was able to buy because he was a veteran and bring stability and put down roots for my family that black men didn't get. And so now I see black men in their 50s and 60s living on the street without having the resources that I had access to. The more housing they build, you better be earning $100,000 a year because none of the new housing is for you. What happens? We've already eliminated housing for the poor. We're eliminating housing for the working class. We're eliminating housing for the middle class. The religion of New York is money. And LGBT, well, race and class determines everything in New York. I... When I remember when GMAC was all white patients, now it's it's not anymore. It's all people of color. Race creates poverty. Race creates imbalance. Race creates injustice. No cop ever fired at me while I was behind the wheel of a car for being made. You know, I homelessness is just about race. P 
poverty without race. My speaking opportunities today. How can I speak about gender identity? I own a home. I have a career. You know, racism affects everything. And people of color have to work so much harder and still get so much less. You know, I remember when Harlem was dangerous, and now I can't afford to live there. My grandfather was born in Harlem in 1895 when I was a Jewish suburb. And after World War I, black men came back from France and didn't want to go back to children of sharecroppers and go back to the South and work for slave wages. And so they came to New York and stayed. And they were ghettoized in Bed-Stuy and in Harlem. I want to fight racism. I think that everyone wants a home in New York, and and they blame the mayor. And it's it's we have buildings, luxury buildings that are empty because they're used to hide money from overseas investors, and you know they're not building housing for people anymore. They're building housing for money for people to store their money. You know, the injustice creates revolution, and they're building these new luxury buildings for people to hide their money. People lose in that situation. I'm a mainstream Democrat, and I'm talking about the coming revolution. You know, just think of what the young and the angry feel. The idea that the revolution's coming and it would be a right-wing, racist, nationalist revolution is something that I didn't see happen. We assume it would be a left-wing revolution, and not it's a right-wing, where white people have so little, and, and instead of blaming the wealthy, they blame the poor. Mind-boggling. I, I have a friend who works in New York City, a close friend who's in charge of ending homelessness for Mayor de Blasio. The solutions are dra dra draconian. Draconian. You know, you want to live next door to a homeless shelter? What if you own a home and there's a homeless shelter? Who's the, in the homeless shelter? Men who've been poor for 20 years and recovering from alcoholism and drug addiction? Families where the struggle to eat will force people to do terrible things. Good people in bad situations. Who wants to live next to a homeless shelter? The answer is we're all going to have to do it. If we care about fighting racism and poverty and homelessness, all of us have to be willing to live next to a homeless shelter. Do you feel like a statement like that has a place in the mainstream Democrat Party today? Politics is hard in America because people that want to change the world for the better are forced to go to 
their neighbors every two years and beg for their job back. Um, what it, they used to, in the 60s and 70s, they used to talk about um, helping the poor and Chuck Schumer was the first of the generation that changed that conversation, helping the middle class. Because you can't win elections and be white if you talk about helping the poor because that comes out as, as giving everything to the blacks. And that doesn't work in our racist culture. So Chuck Schumer says helping the middle class. So now the Democratic Party talks about helping the middle class, which the right sees as code for taking money from the whites and giving free money to the blacks, our money to the blacks. That's how you get a Donald, a Donald Trump to be elected president. You know, you take a look at the Democratic Party, there's a, a great, great generation of, of progressives, of liberals, of radicals, you know, and that's why, well, Governor Cuomo would rather deal with the Republicans. He's afraid of the Democrats. Um, the, the demographics of America are changing. People are desperate. Um, jobs used to pay wages. My father was a high school teacher who owned a three-bedroom house in the suburbs. And my mom stayed at home and raised us. That was eliminated, started by Ronald Reagan. And now, two working parents could no longer afford a house like this. And so fewer and fewer people paying more and more taxes. What they've done is they've taken wages out of work. They've eliminated unions. The new generation is coming of age, you know. They like Bernie because Bernie's talking about these ideas. You know, Hillary knows how to create public policy. Bernie doesn't care about public policy. No one's ever asked him what he thought. He's always been the kooky old guy in the back. Um, the beauty of Hillary is that she was able to take what Bernie was talking about and turn it into public policy. Unlike Bernie, who's never created public policy. Maybe when he was mayor of Burlington in the 70s. The new generation is going to find a way. The, uh, the enemies of progress have, a, have, a, have no respect for law. They have no respect for urban culture. They have no respect for immigrants. They have no respect for LGBT. And they own a lot of guns. So I don't know. That 2030 that's coming for both of us. You know, I would like to see the Democrats take back the Congress in 2018 and impeach him. And spend the next two years having him tweet all he wants as he's being investigated by Congress every day. Works for me. Um, I believe in the Democratic Party. My father believed in the Democratic Party. I learned it from him. You know, public policy and progress goes to the Democratic Party. Has... It has since the 1930s. LBJ gambled everything, knowing full well that this would be the end of Southern support for the Democratic Party. So there's that. My interest in politics transcend my transgender identity.
I'm a white person that cared. That's my quality. Any final words? No. We can have a two and a half hour. You know, I I would The 1970s were an amazing time. It was the emergence of a trans culture. Granted, it was it was all people of color, all undereducated, all based on nightlife and of escorts. But it was magical. It was there. It was people came from all over the world to be trans and beautiful in New York City. Um, it opened up a can of possibilities. So few of those girls are left. My icon as a kid was not Sylvia Rivera when I was in my 20s. You know, um, my icon were these beautiful, beautiful, amazing women, whether it was Tiny Show Business or Ava Hollywood or Miss Sugar. This whole, whole generation of beautiful, beautiful trans women. Um, um, now, uh, Tracy Africa is back in the news. Uh, she was a fashion model until she was out of this trance and was fired. Um, Tracy Norman now, but she back in those days, she was Tracy Africa. No. Oh, so many of them have come and gone, you know, but they showed me the way and they were, they were wonderful, wonderful. Um, and, you know, when I think of trans in the 70s, I know that that they've turned Marsha P. Johnson and Celia Rivera into legendary icons. But I knew legendary icons, and it was these girls in the bar, from the Gilded Grape, from the Grapevine, and from the Barnum Room. And, uh, and they were the beginning of trans life for me, and uh, I hope that their contributions will be remembered and not forgotten. I want to ask you, um, is there one party from the Gilded Grape that you remember distinctly? My friend, uh, Roz Blumenstein, who's now a therapist in California, was Roe. I met her as a teenager. She was one of the disco bats at the Gilded Grape, at the um, Barnum Room. She's written a book. Uh, I will get you access to that book. You could read Roz's book and reach out to her. Uh, her drug, she, I drank, so I forget a, gener I forget a decade. Uh, she used other drugs, which she remembered way better than I did. Um, Roz Blumenstein wrote this book, and you should read it, and um, I will get you, I have a copy at home. I will reach out to you. And it talks about nightlife, trans nightlife in New York in the 70s and 80s, as someone who transitioned at the age of 21 in probably the late 1970s. Thank you. Sure. Thank you so much for your time and for your story. Sure.